you're fighting fire. And we're not encouraging scripture to fight fire with water. Like I'm just gonna try harder and do better. And I'm gonna just like grit my teeth and get through it. No, we're not told in scripture to try to fight the enemy of lust. We're told to flee. You're listening to a sermon series titled Song of Solomon, preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. Well, we've been studying the Song of Solomon and we've been learning about biblical interpretation romance, singleness, homosexuality, identity, and relationships. And I warned you, you just, you just read and saw where we're going. I warned you, we're coming to this text this week where King Solomon, as we learned last week, has now united to his bride Shulamith, the Lebanese, and they were married last week. This morning, we tackle the passage in chapter 4, where, as I gave you ample warning, parents, that we're going to be diving into this and looking at where they are now alone. The door is closed, and they begin to now awaken love as it desires, and they embrace one another. Now, I want to talk about the idea of sex today within marriage, because what happens in pulpits is that often sex in marriage is kind of, it's avoided, and so we don't get into the topic or we look to the world and the world grossly misunderstands and perverts the idea of sexuality. But the writer of Hebrews provides us with great clarity for our marriage bed. He says in Hebrews 13, four, and I'd love for you to jot this verse down and kind of meditate on it this week. He says, marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure, why? For God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually Immoral. I don't know if you caught that, but he says that, that marriage should be honored by everyone in the church and the marriage bed itself should be a place of purity because there's judgment for the one who falls into sexual immorality. The Greek word there is porneia, so all types of sexual sin, and also those who open up their heart and their mind and their body for an adulterous relationship with someone else outside of marriage. And so there you go. We're done today. How was that sermon? Are you guys excited to go have lunch? Who's buying? All right, we're done today. No, no, no. Uh, this is an important discussion. And what happens is a lot of times, someone has said this, when we go, like, I know we live in Florida and we don't have mountains, but we have interstates. But when we um, go into a mountain curve, sometimes we slow down and we grip the wheel. And if you're, you know, the backseat driver, you yell at your husband or wife to slow down. And so we kind of go into that curve very slowly and carefully and our hands are gripping tightly. Uh, instead of kind of going into the curve fast and riding the momentum. And so what I don't want to do is like tiptoe around sex and say, let's just avoid chapter four and let's get on to the other parts of Song of Solomon. We teach verse by verse through the Bible and we're not going to apologize for what the scripture says about gender, about identity, about sexuality. We don't want to be careful and like, oh, I don't mean to offend. We need to just boldly proclaim it because it's freeing and it's amazing. So uh, all around us, our culture is sex crazed. Hashtag Cardi B. Sex crazed. So what should our response be? Don't go Google that, by the way. Um, so here's some responses. And we, we set this up in our first week as we began the Song of Solomon. We talked about there's kind of three responses. And what I want to do is look at those, but add a fourth one. 
Okay, so three responses to sex. Typically, the prude is someone who says, you know, sex is gross. It's, it's merely for procreation. Then there's the partaker. And the partaker would say, sex is God, and I will enjoy it wherever and whenever and with whomever. And then there's the Pharisee, and the Pharisee says, sex is a guise. In other words, I'm going to act like I agree with the Bible, but in secret, I'm going to walk in sinful sexual immorality. And what if our response was none of those three? What if our response was that we are the partner, that we're the partner in marriage, and that response would be that, hey, sex is good, and it's good for us to enjoy exclusively in the marriage bed. In other words, God designed sex. God dreamed it up. God did not create Adam and Eve and, you know, they shall leave father and mother and be joined together. And then God turns away to the angels. And then what are you doing, Adam? Don't look, Jesus. What is happening here? Obviously, God designed it. God dreamed it up. He designed it, though, to create pleasure. Uh, I don't, we're not going to go into male and female anatomy and nerve endings, but God has created the male and female anatomy biologically to actually enjoy certain things that have nothing to do with procreation whatsoever. That means God is interested in sex causing pleasure. So that's true, but we don't want to embrace the craziness of our culture. So what should our response be? I think it's important to make a theological distinction before we dive into this chapter that uh, between God and Satan. So I want you to jot this down. God designs, but Satan perverts. Does that make sense? God designs, Satan perverts. So when God initiates, God creates, God performs, generates, produces, fashions, he calls it good. It's not perfect because there's only one who's perfect and that's God, but it's good. God has made all things and they are inherently good. So if we utilize something the way God intended it to be used, then we actually, the way he designed it, we can reap the benefit uh, or blessing that he has connected with it. And knowingly or unknowingly, we glorify him in the process. So he gives us something good. We use it the way he intended it to be used. And now we enjoy it for our pleasure and for his glory. But see, God designs it and then Satan perverts it. So God gives us something, Satan perverts it. That same thing that God intended for us to use rightly is used wrongly. Now that actually detracts, if that's possible, from the glory of God because it's sinful. And so God designs, Satan perverts, and perhaps nowhere more obvious is that than with sexuality. So here's my question for us this morning as we get started. What is the antidote for fallen sexuality? What is the antidote? Really, it's three things. And what I want to do is read through chapter 4 and see these three antidotes for fallen sexuality. And in the same way that, remember in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, you've heard that it was said in the law, but I say to you, what I want to do is do this in the same way. Contrast what the world says about sexuality and then what the word says about it. Now, when I say fallen sexuality, I want to reiterate God created the world and he called it good. He called it good. And because sin entered the world through Adam, what God has made good has become corrupted and perverted. And now all human beings are separated from God and are in need of salvation. They're in need of redemption. And so when I say fallen sexuality, how do we redeem that? I'm talking about people being redeemed and redeemed people having antidotes or an answer to the world uh, as the world is fallen. And so as we look at chapter four, this is literally, literally the center of the Song of Solomon. This is the main section, and this is the part of the song that is the most erotic, the most popular, 
and the most remembered. But it starts not with sex, it starts with foreplay. I want you to look at chapter 4, verse 1, and above verse 1, there's a heading. So we're about to hear from someone. Here's just a quick Bible trivia. Is this going to be the husband or the wife based on your headings in chapter 4? Yell it out. Is this the husband or wife? What? Okay, good. You were way more confident than early service. They were like not really sure about that. The ESV gives you a, a gimme. It says he. So yeah, you, you uh, are correct. This is the husband. And notice what he says. The door is shut. The clothes are off. Notice what he says in verse 1. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. It almost sounds like he's stuttering. He's repeating himself. Behold, you are, you, you are, you are beautiful. Okay, this is, of course, the man after the wedding ceremony has taken place. Behind the closed door of the wedding chamber, his bride is now his and he is hers. And what does he do? He celebrates her beauty. He does not flip, I don't know they have electricity, but he doesn't flip the light off and get right into the action. Solomon, the husband, can't get enough of Shulamith, his bride. And notice that he starts getting specific in how he compliments her. And he makes some interesting comparisons about her body. So we're going to walk through each one of these. He starts with her eyes. Notice verse 1. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. So he notices her eyes. Now, most people would say, the first thing I notice about that person who's attractive to me is their eyes. Their eyes are amazing. Um, this description of her eyes being doves uh, is not a description of their shape. It's more the fact that they're soft and they're bright. So she has very soft, very bright eyes that reminds him of doves behind her veil. Well, then he goes on and he mentions her hair. He says, your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. So her hair is very dark, it's shiny, it's flowing, it's natural, it's beautiful. If you were to observe in a drone footage a flock of goats coming down uh, a hillside, you go, wow, that's like really natural and flowing, it's really beautiful. And so um, he as a husband is very wise. He's complimenting his wife on her hair. Men, that's a good thing to do. Your wife says, how does my hair look? It looks amazing, right? He, he knows what he's doing. He's a smart man. Uh, and so he says, your hair, it's just, it's beautiful. It's natural. And I love it. Well, then he mentions her teeth. Notice verse 2. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes that have come up from the washing, all of which bear twins, and not one among them has lost its young. So apparently he's impressed with her dental hygiene. <laughs> he says, your teeth are straight, they're symmetrical, they're white, and they're clean. So he's thankful for that. And a lot of our wives are thankful for that when we come to bed that we've brushed our teeth. Uh, and so notice verse 3. Now he's going to her lips, her mouth, and her temple. So he's noticing her features of her face. Verse 3, your lips are like a scarlet thread. Your mouth is lovely. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. Now, when I first read that, I'm like, man, that's kind of a cut down. Like he's saying, you got really big cheeks. You've got big pomegranates for cheeks. That's not what he's saying. Notice with me, you missed it. He says, your lips are like a scarlet thread. So your lips are red. They're delicate. They're provocative. I like those lips. But, but he notices her cheeks look like a pomegranate. Now, it's not a cut down. What he's saying is they're, they're probably red from excitement and the vulnerability of being in front of her man after like a long time of waiting and being betrothed and finally married, and now she's fully exposed before him and the excitement and rush of this moment, knowing, man, I'm 
fully vulnerable, and he's looking at me, and so she begins to blush. But he notices how beautiful she is in that moment. Uh, well, if you are noticing a trend, he's working his way down. So notice now the neck, verse 4. <clears throat> he says, your neck is like the Tower of David. Now, I tried this with my wife when we were first married. I said, hey, honey, let me read to you from Scripture. And I said, your neck is like the Tower of David. And she's like, um, I hate you. Uh, and I said, no, it's biblical. It's biblical. And she goes, well, I haven't read that verse yet. Uh, so it sounds again like, wow, you have an awkwardly tall neck. And that's not what he's doing. Um, notice that he's equating this woman, this peasant woman from Lebanon, now with royalty. Your neck, it reminds me of the royalty of my father. The Tower of David, built in rows of stone. It's elegant and it's purposeful. And on it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. In other words, you're joining me now. And together, our family's royalty. We command the army. And you're alongside me. And he's, he's pointing out, like, you're adorned with these necklaces. I'm, I'm admiring your jewelry. And so as he begins to work his way slowly, not immediately where most men go, he works his way down very tactfully, very slowly. Now he's at her neck. He's using timing and care. And now he gets to verses 5 and 6. Verse 5, your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle that graze among the lilies. Until the day breathes and the shadows flee, I will go away to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. Okay, I'm not blushing you're blushing. Now, let me point out something here. Okay? He now mentions her breasts. Now, notice what he compares them to. He compares her breasts to gazelles, to gazelles. And he says, I want, I want to go hunting. I, I'd like to go hunting for some gazelles. Now, um, I've, I've been hunting before. Um, hey, men, can we make one of our men's ministry events a hunting outing? Can we do this? This would be, this would be fun. I'm all for that. All right, let's, let's get that going. So I've been hunting before, never been hunting for gazelles. They don't typically live indigenous to Florida. So this is not something I've had the privilege of doing. But apparently, as we've learned before, gazelles are very nimble. They're very fast. They're very curious. And they're almost impossible to approach. Okay. So how would you hunt a gazelle? One pastor describes it this way, and I can't improve on how he says this. He says, here you are. You're hiding in the bushes. You're waiting for the gazelles to show themselves. And all of a sudden, you see them by the water brook, and you've got your gun trained, and you just run out. Gazelles, 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 right? That, that's ridiculous. You would not do that. You would approach them slowly. You would approach them carefully. Do I need to go any more in depth to what we're talking about and apply this? If I do, talk to me after service. You don't go right in for the kill. You're going to lose the gazelles, okay? <laughs> so notice verse 7, though. Notice verse 7. He wraps up all of his description of her and he says, you are altogether beautiful, my love. There's no flaw in you. Now, can we just camp out here for a minute? He's not being crass or crude. He's not like, take it off, baby. Let me check you out. He is slowing down and he is recalling something that she had been insecure about. Remember when we learned about this a few weeks back? She had said, as she was presenting herself to him as a single, she had said, my brothers left me out in the field and I'm just insecure about the darkness of my skin. In that culture, light skin was something that was more attractive to people. And so she's insecure about the, the, um, this one, what she thinks is a flaw. And so now here she is completely naked, completely unashamed like they were in the garden, Adam and Eve. 
And she's been insecure about this flaw of hers, but notice what he says to her in verse seven. He says, no, you are all together. All, every aspect of you is beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. Uh, he is removing that insecurity by affirming her beauty. And he has captured, not only has she captured his heart, she's captured his breath. Now this is the first reversal of the world's fallen, depraved sexuality. And that is number one, if we're taking note, beauty, beauty. So I wanna juxtapose what the world says and what the word says. The world says when it comes to beauty, show all, tell all. The world says show all, tell all. Now we have to be careful here because you know, we use PowerPoint, we use um, ProPresenter. I can't in any way illustrate to you lust. There's no way I can use media to do that. I had a guy in Bible college I was friends with who got up to do a PowerPoint presentation on lust. And <laughs> he realized as he was preparing it, I can't do that. There's no way I can do that because it's gonna be inappropriate. Um, now I've been to the mall, uh, the world flaunts sexuality. And as I'm walking down the mall, I walk by Victoria's Secret and I realize there is nothing secret about Victoria. And so I have to avert my eyes and oh, there's Tesla. And I have to look away but see, that equally creates a covetous problem for me as well. So the world loves to show all and tell all. And, and I encourage you not to do this, but if you were to type the word girl into Google, even with safe search on, and men, why would you not have safe search on? Why would you not have some type of accountability software on every device that you have? I don't know why you wouldn't, but even if you were to have safe search on and you type in the word girl, the results will be very, very risky. So the world says show all and tell all. You, you can't go to Vegas without looking on the ground and seeing paraphernalia, without looking up at billboards and seeing paraphernalia, without looking around and seeing street prostitutes. And so the world says show all, tell all. You can't go there, but you can also go to Publix today and go through the checkout without seeing every gossip article about who's sleeping with who, who has someone's baby, and who has broken up with who. The world loves to be exhibitionistic, to be crass, and to kind of throw out those that's what she said jokes. And ultimately, the world says show all, tell all, but the word says show him and then tell her. Does that make sense? In the bedroom, show him. Show him your beauty. Don't turn the lights off. Leave the lights on. Show him. And then you tell her, tell her she's beautiful. Communicate your love for her and why she means so much to you. She is showing off her body to him in the bedroom. She's a virgin. She's wearing basically her hair and her necklaces. And in response, he says, you are captivating. You are lovely. You're beautiful. She is exposing herself to her husband alone with nothing hidden. And in that vulnerable state, he moves in and speaks love and encouragement and romantic words to her. And he takes his time to encourage her in her beauty. And then in verse eight, he begins to invite her on this journey. Notice verse eight, he says, come with me from Lebanon. That's where she's from. My bride, come with me. And he basically says, leave the dangerous places, the dens of lions, the mountains of leopards. But I love verse nine. He says, you've captivated my heart, my sister, my bride, with one glance of your eyes. It wasn't your boobs, or your backside that drew me to you. It was your eyes. And so I am captivated just by one look, one jewel of your necklace. Uh, you are beautiful, you're radiant, there is no flaw in you. Listen, church, marital beauty is an antidote for the trash that the world calls beauty. 
There was a friend of mine who was telling me about his grandfather who was this godly missionary overseas for years and years and years. And he was taking his car to be repaired. And so he pulls into the, um, the oil change place and the mechanics who were working on his car noticed that he had a Bible and some scripture verses in the dash. And so they were looking at a pornographic magazine in the garage and they said, hey, old man, come here. And he walked up and they said, what do you think of her? And they held out this nude magazine in front of this godly missionary's eyes. Well, he immediately looked away and my friend conveyed this story to me. The, his grandfather said, she indeed is very beautiful, but this picture makes her very ugly. I thought, wow. See, beauty is found in the purity of being naked and unashamed with the one you've committed your life to. Peter says to his audience in 1 Peter 3, 3 and 4, he says, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing that you wear. There's nothing necessarily wrong with that, but he says, But let your a true adorning be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is in God's sight is very precious. And so Peter says, if you're going to adorn yourself to make yourself beautiful, it should be in your character, not in your clothing. And so if you're single here, and we've talked about this in the message on, on being single, and you're trying to attract people, let me wear that certain shirt or that certain perfume to try to draw attention, to try to be attractive. Uh, we're not to place our stock in outward beauty, but the scriptures remind us true beauty is inward. It's submitting to Christ, and that submission is attractive. Even the Proverbs remind us that this beautiful woman who goes out and shows no discretion whatsoever is as misplaced as a pig wearing jewelry. It just does not fit. It's like, what is that about? That's weird. And, and so the world flaunts sexuality, show all, tell all, but the word says, show him, tell her. So notice what he says in verse 10. He says, how beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine and the fragrance of your oils than any spice? And then he begins to get very specific. Verse 12, a garden locked is my sister, my bride, a spring locked, a fountain sealed. Now, some people translate that as her virginity so that she has never been with a man. So she is sexually a locked garden a fountain that's sealed. But if we're going to be consistent in interpretation throughout the book of Song of Solomon, the garden is a picture of their intimacy and the fountain is a picture of their overflow uh, sexual love for one another. So I don't believe this is a description of her virginity. I believe this is a description of their intimacy together. And, and so um, back down in verse 15, he says, this is a well of living water flowing streams from Lebanon and then he says, Awake, O north wind, and come, O south wind. Blow upon my garden, let its spices flow. He was comparing this safe place that's locked from the outside. No one can get in there. No one can come into this sealed fountain. He's comparing that to the dens of lions and leopards that are on the mountains previously. So there's danger out there, but in here there's safety. There's security. Outsiders pose no threat to this place of intimacy. And that brings us to our second idea of how do we redeem sexuality as a, as a redeemed follower of Christ. Number two, unity. This is a reversal of the world's fallen, depraved sexuality. So the world says sex means nothing. Sex means nothing. To the world, sex is just a means of physical expression. Oh, you're sexually frustrated? Well, you need to get, kind of get that outlet uh, fulfilled. Just go have sex and you're good. Uh, I was shocked to read this week some stats. The, do you guys know the average number of lifetime sexual partners for people in the U.S. 
averages over 10. So people within the world would have an average of about 10 different sexual partners. Did you know 58% of Americans have admitted to what's called a one-night stand, having a sexual encounter with someone that they just met and they'll never uh, have a relationship with after that sexual encounter. 58% of Americans. People will now equate their sexual preference as their sexual orientation. And some people even describe themselves as pansexual, meaning I'm sexually fluid, I don't notice gender. That's really a smokescreen for saying I'm not really biased about whomever I have sex with. And so the world would say there's a difference between your, your um, biological sex and your gender. And I don't know where that came from, but the world essentially says sex means nothing. It's not that important. What's so hypocritical about that, though, is that someone, and, and I may, there may be even you here today, if you've experienced sexual abuse or if you've been the victim of rape, or any type of, of, of uh, sexual predation, if you've been exposed by someone or you've been abused by someone, to you, that does not mean nothing. It, to you, that is a scar, both physically and emotionally and spiritually, that you may still even carry today. So to say sex means nothing, well, tell that to the person who was a child who was abused by a family member. Tell that to someone who has been taken advantage of by someone they trusted. Sex to the world means nothing. But the word says, no, sex means unity. It's deep, physical, personal, emotional, and spiritual union. Now, the Bible says when two come together, they actually become one flesh. And because of that union, we come to a verse in 1 Corinthians 6, which is actually kind of cringy to think about. But Paul says this, Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute, it's hard to even consider that, is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. And then he says, because of that, flee. Flee from sexual immorality. In other words, there's more going on than just two bodies that happen to fit together physically in a sexual connection. No, there's a spiritual oneness. There's a linking together of souls and spirits that takes two individuals and makes them one in God's eyes. Sex means unity. Husbands, can I just communicate to you for a minute? that if you've been engaging in any type of sexual sin, pornography, that what that does is that tears the unity that God has designed in marriage. And you might say, well, it's just a little struggle that I have. And, and it has nothing to do with you, sweetie. You don't realize that for her, that means that you're tearing apart this unity and you're actually, in her mind, committing adultery. And so we need to realize that God has brought us together, that this little struggle you think you have is literally tearing apart the fabric of your sexual union with one another. Now, there, there are many repeated words in this section of um, Song of Solomon 4, but what seems to be the most repeated word is the word my. It's, it's mentioned 20 times in this section. So notice where she begins to talk in the second half of verse 16. Chapter 4, verse 16, she says, Let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choicest fruits. And then what does he say? Verse 1 of chapter 5, he says, I came to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gathered my myrrh with my spice. I ate my honeycomb with my honey. I drank my wine with my milk. Right? And so note with me the fact that they are enjoying this unity together. Her body is his wonderland, but it's also the promised land. Notice with me that he's talking about the same phrase that is used of 
uh, in Exodus chapter 3, verse 8, when they looked at the promised land, as they were waiting in the wilderness to come enter the land, uh, they said it's flowing with milk and honey. And he's using those same words as descriptions of their intimacy. Now, but note with me that it's, he's saying, I'm coming to you and you belong to me. Not in a creepy girlfriend kind of way, but in the fact that we're both united together. So my body belongs to you, your body belongs to me. We belong to one another. Now, you may have missed this when we first read through it, but this is not awkward. It, the second half of verse 1, the friends chime in, okay? Now, they're not with their ear up to the door in some kind of gross way, but notice that they say, eat friends, drink, and be drunk with love. Uh, they just don't miss the point that they are saying, this is God's antidote for immorality. Drink it in. Eat it up. Enjoy it. Have this marital ecstasy. Enjoy this time. And notice that she had said at the end of chapter 4, hey, come and enjoy. This should be a place of refreshment. This should be a place where we enjoy this. Now, can I just speak to the, to the marriages here? Your marriage bed should be a place of enjoyment. It should be a place of satisfaction. So if there's things that are happening in the marriage bed where you feel like there's a block there, you feel like, you know, maybe there's been some unforgiveness, maybe there's been pornography abuse, maybe there's been uh, some things that you've attempted in the marriage bed that you're uncomfortable with, you've got to communicate those things. You've got to make sure that this is a place of ecstasy and joy and uh, satisfaction. And so that's kind of what the friends are capturing in this verse. They're saying, man, this is joy and fulfillment that they're experiencing in the marriage bed. And we celebrate that. And that's a good thing. That's not a perverted thing. In the marriage bed, that's something that we can celebrate. Uh, and that brings us to our third antidote for the fallen sexuality. And that's maybe one you don't expect. And that's worship. Worship. Well, how does that have anything to do with sex? Well, the world says sex is a god. Uh, sex is an idol. And so if you wanted to worship your false god of choice in ancient Israel, you typically would go up to the high places or under a specific type of tree. You'd go to that place to offer sacrifices. If you were in the Greco-Roman world, you typically would go into a house of worship where a priest or priestess would help you bring an offering and give glory to whichever false god you wanted to appease. Today, we don't necessarily have high places where people go and worship, and we don't necessarily have these... Uh, houses of worship where you go to make sacrifices to false gods. But today, on the altar of sex, there are billions of parishioners who pay money and who pay homage. And sadly, many of these are professing Christians. I'm talking about pornography. Do you guys know 28,258 users watch pornography every second? $3,000 is spent every second on the internet looking at porn. Uh, according to Covenant Eyes, our family, we use Accountable to You, the number two. Uh, it's a great software option. Um, and again, I encourage every one of us to have that. Why wouldn't we have that? But another one is Covenant Eyes. And according to Covenant Eyes, this kind of broke my heart. They found that teens and young adults ages 13 to 24, and when they surveyed them, they believed that, that not recycling, that not recycling is worse than viewing pornography. You see, the world says sex is a god that you worship. But the word says, the word says sex is not a God, but it is a way to bring Yahweh glory in your marriage. You see, worship is simply holding up a God that's worthy, and then you make sacrifices to it. 
And we were designed to glorify something. John ends his epistle, his first epistle, by saying, hey, Jesus is the true God in eternal life. And then, hey, brothers, keep yourselves from idols. And then he just drops the mic. He doesn't say goodbye, greet one another. Hey, send so-and-so my regard. He just literally says, Jesus is the true God in eternal life. And then keep yourselves from idols. In other words, anything that is not Jesus, uh, by nature, is a false God. And so we are creatures who love to worship and we love to seek out glory. And if we don't return glory where it was designed to be, then we end up glorifying something that's a perversion. Paul Tripp said it this way. He said, human beings are hardwired for glory because they were hardwired for God. The glory orientation that's inside of every person is meant to drive us to God. So listen, today, if you're struggling with sexual identity or hedonism or pornography, I would challenge you, you're fighting fire. And we're not encouraging scripture to fight fire with water. Like, I'm just going to try harder and do better. And I'm going to just like grit my teeth and get through it. No, we're not told in scripture to try to fight the enemy of lust. We're told to flee. We're told to run in the opposite direction like Joseph with Potiphar's wife. Leave the coat and run the other direction. Listen, sexual sin is not a problem with your weakness. It's a problem with your worship. So instead of fighting fire with water, we should fight fire with fire, with the passion of God's pleasures, with looking to who God is and saying, where am I finding the ultimate glory and worth? Is it in this created thing? Like Romans chapter one, two, and three talk about how we have fallen into creating or you know, exchanging the glory of God for the created thing. Do we try to like muscle through this struggle? It's not about weakness, it's about worship. Uh, there's actually a, a, in Greek mythology, this idea of the siren. And the siren was this beautiful, dangerous creature, kind of like a mermaid. And these sirens were singing and they would lure sailors who passed by with their song, with enchanting music and beautiful voices. But what happened is when the sailors heard them, they couldn't escape them. And so they would turn their boat in that direction and they'd crash their boat in the treacherous and perilous waters. Even though they were seeking pleasure, it became perilous to them. And according to Greek mythology, on one occasion, Orpheus was on a ship and he heard the siren song and he wanted to hear more. And so he instructed his men, tie me to the mast and no matter what I say, don't listen to me. And so then he plugs the ears of his men and he begins to get close to hearing uh, the songs of the sirens. Now, um, what also happened was that uh, he drew out his lyre and began to play his music more beautiful than the sirens by drowning out their voices. Now, some of us think, you know, I can drown out sexual morality by tying myself to the mast or plugging my ears and I'm just gonna make it through. But why not sing the song of the glory of God, which is more beautiful than the song that the sirens are singing? See, there's a better way. Uh, and it's a greater glory than anything this fleeting sexual pleasurable moment can provide. It's knowing the glory of God in the person of Christ. And so I wanna encourage us in our marriages to enjoy one another, to seek the beauty and the unity and the worship of God that happens when we take something he designed He's not embarrassed about it. He's not blushing when we talk about sex. That we take what he's designed and we use it rightly. Now, as we close, we've talked about how do we see Jesus in this text? Uh, well, we see him in the tender embrace of his bride. The Bible imagines for us that the church, you and I, the body of Christ, are the bride of Christ. 
And so we see Jesus in the tender embrace of his bride. We see him speaking love and appreciation and gratitude for his bride. He calls her radiant, beautiful, and he's captivated by who she is. You and I, the church, we've been embraced by our kinsman redeemer who's united himself with someone who on the surface is completely undeserving and unworthy. And he's united himself to his bride forever. Uh, now, Charles Spurgeon often over-allegorizes uh, the Song of Solomon. And so I haven't quoted him a lot. Um, someone came up to me one time and said, you have a Spurgeon quote in every sermon. I was like, if it's a good sermon, there's at least one in every uh, sermon. But we haven't quoted much from Spurgeon throughout Song of Solomon because he tends to over-allegorize. He, he takes the twin breasts and says, this is, of course, the, love, uh, the commands of love God and love neighbor and, uh, and the believers in between those. And I just don't see that. Um, but... I love how he um, interprets this section. So I'm going to read this lengthy quote, and then we'll pray together. Spurgeon says this. He says, while we at this time speak of the church as a whole, so the greater body of Christ, it will be quite correct for each individual believer to take home to himself any truth, whether doctrinal, experimental, or practical, which we treat of as the heritage of the church. So what does he mean? He says, each saint may say, this belongs to me. That which belongs to the redeemed family belongs to each member of that family. The love of the Lord Jesus is to his church as a body, and it is the same to each believer as a member of that body. So here's what he goes on to say. He says, dear friends, if you know that this is so, that the love of Christ for his church applies to you individually, he says, be happy in his love. See to it that you live wholly to him and for him. As you have a good hope that he is altogether yours, be altogether his. Honor him in your families and honor him in the outside world. Serve the Lord wherever you are, whether you're most found in the kitchen, the parlor, the workshop, the street, or the field. Make it your delight that you are reserved unto him. Acknowledge that the vows of the Lord are upon you. You are his sister and his spouse. Give him love in both forms. Find in him brother and bridegroom. You are his garden enclosed, his spring shut up, his fountain sealed. Then yield your all to him, both of fruit and flow, of work of hand and warmth of heart. Be yours the honor, the bliss of being all together your Lord's. Amen? My prayer for us is that we would have marriages, as I've said before, that in our marriage bed, we're the most free and we're having the most fun because we're the most fulfilled because this is how God has designed it. And that we as followers of Christ would rest in his finished work and realize there's nothing good in me, but it's all good in him. And he sent his son to be united to me because of his great love expressed in Christ. So let's pray together and then we'll worship. Father, we thank you for your love that's expressed to us in the cross of Calvary. That love is not deserved. That grace is not something we earn but we thank you, Lord, that you've bestowed upon us freely your love. Uh, we receive it today. We are thankful for it. We're in awe of it. Uh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. And as we close in song, Lord, we just want to celebrate that love and bask in it and glory in it. And the fact that you came down from heaven to earth uh, to bring us into union with yourself. And that first meant that you had to be cut off from the Father that the wrath of God was poured out upon the Son, that you took my place at Calvary. You were the propitiation for my sin. 
We thank you that you overcame sin and death and conquered it in your resurrection. And Lord, you ascended to the right hand of the Father and one day you're coming again. And until that day, may we just glory in who you are. And Lord, I pray for anyone here today who is struggling with sexual sin, with pornography, with adulterous thoughts, maybe even with adultery. Would this be a day of repentance? Would you grant repentance, Father? Would you, maybe there's a time of confession that needs to happen with another brother or with our wives or with our husbands. Lord, may there be unity and beauty and true glorifying of God in our marriage bed. We thank you for this gift that you've given us, not just for more children, but to enjoy and to bring you glory. So Father, would you help us to grow in these areas? Would you be glorified through your son as we sing? It's in Jesus' name we alone can pray, amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. at the Port on Lena Road. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at God bless you.